0: People can argue that these things are secured until someone finds a way to hack into them
1: so <laughs> let, let me ask um does it mean that because someone can come and break your front door yeah you won't lock it at night <laughs> right what would you instead do would well, you lock it, lock it and it. make it yes make <laughs> it harder for someone to exactly break it. it doesn't mean they can't break in mm-hmm. like people break into banks yeah. It's not your house that they can't break. It ain't <laughs> Exactly. So,
0: <laughs> all right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to this episode of the Comrades Podcast. With me here, I have Stefan Frolich, who is a senior software engineer in the industry. Um, Stefan, it's nice to have you here. Thank you. Uh, I would like you to share with
1: us, you? Uh, well, um. the name is Stefan Frolich. Um, half Ghanaian, half German, born and raised in Ghana. Lived my entire life here, so... I consider myself Ghanaian every day all day. Um, I went to tech right after University National Service. I worked for a bank in the IT department as a help desk officer and gradually from there moved up. I already had an interest in programming so um, I quickly pivoted to programming about six years or seven years after that and it is what it is since then
0: that means you have uh very much knowledge
1: about the tech uh ecosystem in ghana oh about ecosystem yeah yeah i've been in it for quite a while okay. uh, so i've seen i've seen it change i've seen it grow. Mm-hmm. i've i've not been involved in it from the early days even though i mm-hmm. saw it from afar so yeah i've been here
0: okay yeah that that sounds like a lot and i guess we would have loads of things to learn from your experience in the yeah. industry okay Today, we are going to be discussing security and just how mm-hmm. uh, software engineers can be conscious about security when undertaking their project. So yeah, Steph, uh,
1: what's your background in sto- story about security? I mean, when we talk about security. So I am not a security expert by any means. I, I don't specialize in security. Mm-hmm. I am just a normal programmer who happened to get into programming because I wanted to be a hacker funny enough (laughs) so my origin story like really ties into the whole thing about security um when i was younger we that was in uni we used to fish each other so um that was how i actually discovered php because php was used by um we call them script Mm kiddies essentially people who can go online and find other people's code and use it to um, perpetuate exploits so they don't actually write code themselves but they use other people's code so after I found um, PHP was how I actually became um, a proper. Software I started engineer. becoming a proper engineer, yeah, and it mainly became like was because we wanted to be hackers. Yeah, like everyone wanted to hack. So, <laughs> and you can't hack without being a programmer. <laughs> so here we are.
0: Okay, so uh, what has your journey been from that point where you started like doing, uh, let's say, fishing and trying out the scripts in mm. PHP? Like, what was your journey from that point to being so uh, sen- a senior software engineer?
1: I quickly pivoted to being a proper programmer Mm -hmm. rather than being like a hacker or someone into security because I actually like building stuff. Mm -hmm. But the lessons I had learned from the days when I was into these shady things, Mm -hmm. I was never really a professional criminal or anything, but we used to play around, with especially on each other. Um, But after discovering some of these things, like being introduced to tools that could perform SQL injection on people's sites, you you carry these things with you. So I've always try to maintain a baseline um security profile whenever i'm I'm programming I'm by no means the most secure programmer out there but there are certain things that i think that developers could pick up that would make sure that the programs they build are not completely impervious but at least difficult enough for people to abuse right so it's not just about security it's sometimes about abuse of the the system itself like Um, people putting junk data in there doing all kinds of stuff so okay so basically just inferring
0: from your background story like what are some of the things that uh kind of you learned from those things that actually placed you on the path that you are uh, currently on in software engineering
1: okay so um when it comes to the lessons i learned in security um there's always been one fundamental rule that you should always obey and adhere to Um, which is never trust user input. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't matter what the input is, never trust it. You would think that user input refers only to things like people entering their email and phone number or their password and stuff. That is user input. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to programming, anything that comes from the client is, is client input. So when you make an HTTP request, It contains a lot more than the input that a person has entered, either in the browser URL Mm -hmm. or has entered in the username password field. Mm -hmm. There's headers. There's um, a whole lot that's packaged together and sent as a request. All of that counts as user input. Because people, when they're attacking you, would always leverage either directly in the forms or even how they hit your server directly. Exactly. Right? You heard about... um, the issue we had with the SSL thing. What was it called? Was it Bleed? I don't remember what it was. Okay. I believe it was Hardbleed. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure again. But mm-hmm. you don't hit that by entering the form. You hit okay. that by making a call directly to the server mm-hmm. and passing it data that it, it doesn't Let's say it doesn't understand or data that would trigger certain things exactly. like you would cause a buffer overflow or you do something, right? Yeah, or yeah. maybe you are uploading a file of a budget size. So okay. for example, with attacks like DDOS. Mm-hmm. With DDoS attacks, for example, you are looking at um, people sending too much information at the same time. All of that is user input, and all of that can be used maliciously. Yeah. So it's always the fundamental rule is never to trust user input and to ensure that you are protected against user input. That's so that's what everything stems from yeah so that that brings me to the issue of uh user uh
0: validating user inputs Mm -hmm. so now we have to talk about validation as a way of uh mitigating like not trusting uh every input that comes from the client so talking about validation what kind of things should we like can we look at in that aspect okay
1: So when you are receiving any input from a client, the primary thing you want to always do is to ensure that you are validating that input. Mm -hmm. You must always validate whatever input it is. If it's an email, ensure that it's an email. Because remember, people will try to enter junk data into your site. If you're collecting emails, then the quality of your, your data is even affected. Exactly. Or they could enter anything at all. So you always have to ensure that the data that someone is coming is sending to you is validated now validation goes in different ways okay we are talking about validating the type of data if you're expecting a number make sure it's a number if you're expecting a number within a certain boundary make sure it's a number within a certain boundary if you're expecting data of a certain format make sure that it's data of that format if you're expecting um a list and you don't you must always also do constraining so you must always constrain the data that you are willing to accept for example if you're accepting a user description, you shouldn't give them the ability to enter as much information as they can. Yeah, like meeting the amount of characters. Maximum character. So constrain the data to certain allowable limits where the person can't send more than, if the person is creating a list, constrain it to a certain number of items in the Mm -hmm. list. You can create only 20, 30, 40, 50. But always put a constraint on it, else you're going to bother yourself. Then once you're done with validation, there is the other aspect of filtering and sanitizing. Mm Um, some information that would come in, you want to filter it and make sure that the data that's coming in is acceptable. So if some, let, let me just use a very simple system. If you have a comment-based system and people are commenting, you don't want certain words to come in. Exactly. Like swear words. So you want to sanitize those words out of it. How you do it is different. I'm not saying, I'm not going to recommend ways of doing it, but you should try to sanitize stuff like that, right? So the person comes in, they enter these words, they are bandwidth, remove them from it or prevent them from entering. Then you also have um, where people are posting data, you are, where you are sending it out for other people. You always want to sanitize that information. So, for example, if you're in a comment system, again, and people can type, you don't want to render HTML in the browser. Exactly. Right? You are going to expose people to um, cross-site scripting yeah. and uh, a, a whole lot of, mm-hmm. uh, what do you call it? XSS, right? A whole lot of other things because now you're allowing people to manipulate the content you are sending yeah. out. So, I, as I said, if you do certain fundamentals, it protects you from a whole host of vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. If, if you do use validation, filtering, and sanitization, you've sort of covered 90% of the attack vectors that most okay. people would use on you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, most people who are inexperienced wouldn't be able to go beyond that. Then... You have people who are more advanced, who are able to craft way more, but that's not for the basic programmer who's trying to build a normal site. That is a little bit more for the security or infrastructure team to ensure that they are putting in firewalls, doing all those things, ensuring that nothing is um, coming at a high level. But today we are going to deal with people on our level. How do we do this validation?
0: Okay, so uh, I think what you just spoke about the validating user inputs, it's something that I can relate to personally, because in my experience as a mobile engineer, uh, there are almost every time we are validating inputs, even users selecting files from their uh, galleries, images and videos that they try to upload, we have like size constraints. So, if your file is above, let's say, 4 megabytes, so you say, no. Know, yeah, you can't uh, upload that to our server. Like we, no. we tell you it's too big. And then, yeah. So, uh, as a junior engineer, I think most people start out in software engineering and then they just write, code that displays, maybe like an app, but they do a screen, choose mm-hmm. a bunch of information, make API calls. And uh, I don't think even the books that we have on software engineering do actually lay out like, a topic like security
1: validation so stuff like uh that.
0: in in like how can the newbie engineer be very conscious of these things because it's usually when things go wrong that you actually prompted about them
1: so um if you're a junior engineer on a team then it's it is it is expected that you do not know everything and you are still learning mm-hmm. so whoever is leading and is in charge of pull requests reviews is supposed to look at that and ensure that you've done that if you haven't done that then that's a teachable moment where you can use that and say hey um look into these things understand why they exist you can explain to them and then let them know so for a junior engineer you are not expected to know everything but it's something that you should start picking up early that's why i said if you focus on even just validating sanitizing and filtering your data, mm-hmm. you are going to have 90% of the issues solved. Like for most problems. Um there are a lot more things that you can do, but those would solve your problem. Now you also mentioned something interesting that I want to talk about, which is that as a mobile engineer you do a lot of validation exactly. Stuff. Now we also need to be careful because mm-hmm. client side validation is not the best way to do validation. Mm-hmm. Client-side validation is purely a UX issue. Mm-hmm. It is to ensure that if the person enters information that you are not going to accept when they submit the form, you are telling them beforehand that hey, don't do this because we don't like it. Yeah. Can you can you take that again? Okay. So if someone comes to your your website, mm-hmm. your mobile app, whatever, and they enter a phone number, but in the phone number field they enter. Um, um, an email address. Mm-hmm. You want to warn them that hey, the server is not going to accept this. Yeah. So this is not the format we want. Enter an actual mm-hmm. phone number, and it's a UX thing. It's more of the experience that the user I has, so, the so user. that they don't have to click submit exactly. before you you throw the error. Mm-hmm. But your your validations should always always occur on the server.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You can add them on the client side because it's a UX thing and it's great. You should do it. Yeah, If you're building an app and you can put in client-side validation, please do it. It's going to give your users a, um, a good time. But don't neglect to, to to work on the server. Remember, someone can bypass your app and still make an API call. Exactly. Well, an HTTP call directly to your, to your server and provide any junk data they want. Mm-hmm. So if your server is not actually validating what it's receiving, mm-hmm. and you think that because your web page is validating, um, it's like, what do they say? Um what them but i not end up <laughs> you know i wonder what that means it means that <laughs> you you think you're sleeping in your room but, but your legs are outside
0: outside <laughs> <laughs> i think another another uh aspect of um, security that i encounter in my day job is dealing with uh, api keys and yes. kind of like configuration files that we don't want to yes. sometimes push even to our git server mm-hmm. we want to just keep them like in some secure location. Yeah. Like, how do you deal with such um, such situations? Are there any, like, rule of terms that are around such, like, handling such situations?
1: Okay. So, um we, we spoke about junior engineers in exactly. the beginning. No junior engineer should be put in charge of deploying an application mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can guide them, you can work mm-hmm. with them, you can do it, but they shouldn't be put in charge. Mm-hmm. Mainly because there are certain shortcomings that, you as a senior or even intermediate would understand that they do not understand. Mm -hmm. So whilst you would want to work with them to do it, you don't do it. So someone in a senior position would be in charge of doing this. Now, someone in a senior position, I would expect to understand the concept of secrets. Mm -hmm. So what are secrets? Secrets, are application data that you don't want other people to know about. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, let me let me use your password. When you are mm-hmm. logging into your Facebook, your password is a secret. It's supposed to be known only to you and to the server. Now, there are certain things that the server also does mm-hmm. that requires things like passwords, exactly API keys. As you mentioned, for example, mm-hmm. are an example of um, machine-to-machine authentication yeah. keys, right? So they are also passwords. Mm-hmm. You want the server to know it so it can make a call. So, for example, maybe someone is making a payment. I want to talk to ZPay and say, hey, ZPay, charge this person's account. ZPay needs to know it's me. So, I need to authenticate with ZPay. They give me a private key, um, an API key, whatever it is, whatever authentication material they give me. It's secret. It's only meant to be known between myself and ZPay. Exactly. So, just like your password, which you don't want other people to know about, how do you handle these things? So, all secrets should be available in memory in the application. So mm-hmm. when your application starts up, mm-hmm. it you want to have it available in memory. But you don't want it persisted somewhere that people can see. Okay. So most often, we would put these keys inside of the environment. So if you have an application, you put it into the env, and whenever the application starts up, it picks these secrets from the them. env. Now, <laughs> mm-hmm. certain programming languages or frameworks would allow you to create local m files. Let's use um, Rails, for example. You can Mm -hmm. have, like, um, a settings file, and you can have a credentials file. Mm -hmm. A credentials is secret which you commit in the repo by it's encrypted. Others would not allow you, don't have that at all. So, most of the, or some of, sorry, allow you to do, like, these .env usually when Mm -hmm. you're programming, and we tend to make those .env files. Yeah, .env files, like, which will allow you to specify a local one it's usually for testing yeah like for testing so maybe the test code you want it in there but some people would either leave their their secrets in there Mm -hmm. or they would hard code the secrets inside of the application application. a common example is um, database access Mm -hmm. most people hard code their database username username and password password yes database access is again anything that gives you that authenticates you mm-hmm. to someone by like for a rule of thumb it's, if it gives you access to something as yourself if it authenticates you you should treat it as a secret yeah. and you should not expose it either in your code base or in your um how do you call it or like on disk in your app, mm-hmm. right? So if you have it in memory, it's only available in memory. Yeah. Then that works well.
0: Yeah. I think I think uh in my time dealing with like CI environments, yeah. I think we stored the configuration or like very secret keys that we wouldn't want to be exposed mm-hmm. in the environmental variables. Yes. And then when the application started, we use these libraries to fetch them, them into memory and then we use them. Yes. We used them. Yep. But like uh people can argue that these things are secured until someone finds a way to hack into them.
1: So let, let me ask um, does it mean that because someone can come and break your front door yeah you won't lock it at night <laughs> right what would you instead do would well, you I'll lock still it lock and it. make it yes, make <laughs> it harder for someone to exactly. break it. it doesn't mean they can't break in mm-hmm. like people break into banks yeah. it's not your house that they can't break in burglar proof <laughs> exactly so yeah you can choose to leave yeah everything open or mm-hmm. try to secure it a bit Mm-hmm. Remember, security at its best is usually a best effort thing. Mm-hmm. You, are, you are putting in as many stumbling blocks um, to prevent a potential attacker. Mm-hmm. But if an attacker, if you are a juicy enough target and that an attacker is dedicated enough and funded enough, trust me, mm-hmm. they will break into your <laughs> systems. Like, they break into Microsoft, they break into yeah. Uber, they break into... Everyone, they even break into the federal FBI sometimes. <laughs> like, yeah, so security is the yeah. best effort at, at its most. Yeah. So, yeah, do the best effort you can and uh, yeah. pray. And then just moving
0: our conversation to the backend side of yeah. things, because usually backend systems are like the heart of most applications that we use these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've talked about validating user inputs and setting uh, constraints here and there. Mm-hmm. But kind of talking about uh, back-end security, I think I've read a couple of articles where people argue that um, an an authentication system like, let's say, JWT Mm -hmm. isn't secure. And then you see some people on the other side of the internet, engineers who argue that it is secure. And then these conversations keep going on. And then you would ask yourself, like, uh, if I were a back-end engineer, like, what would I choose? And say I decide to go with JWT Um, are there ways I can use an existing technology even though it has like vulnerabilities and try to work my way around it?
1: I wouldn't say you should use an existing technology if it has vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. I would say that with every technology you use understand the Mm trade-offs. JWT does not have vulnerabilities. Okay. How you implement your usage of JWT could introduce vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. Does JWT have trade-offs? Definitely. But does it have a purpose? Yes. So, um, I know we are using JWT here as an example, Mm -hmm. but every system you use has Mm trade-offs. API keys, for example, let's start, let's let's look at certain common authentication schemes. Keys, static API keys, server secrets. They are Mm long-lived. That means that if it gets breached, um if the your api key gets breached yeah the person has access to it to it forever until someone changes it exactly and usually server secrets are not rotated that often right sorry Mm -hmm. and usually server secrets are not rotated that often so um there's a there's a vulnerability there sorry there's a there's a trade-off there Mm -hmm. in ensuring that the person keeps it secret and then people implement rotation policies but does it have a use yes because it's quick to authenticate Yeah. If I give you an API secret and you come, I'm able to check against the database. Does do I have does this guy's key match the hash of this? Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's very it's a very quick query. I confirm, I move on. So I'm trading off performance for potential a potential vulnerability. Yeah. But then you put in fixes on the other side to cater for it. Now let's look at another way. Cookies. You can't use cookies in a mobile app.
0: Cookies are used in the browser. In the browser. Yeah.
1: You 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 can't use cookies in a, a mobile app. Mm-hmm. cookies can be can be vulnerable like people back in the day we used to put data directly in cookies so the user id will be directly in the yeah. cookie and you could go in, edit the cookie to another user id and, and gain access works. as that yeah. person right now we know that this is wrong so either we do things like we do a, crypt- a cryptographic um hash of the data in there mm-hmm. and short or we encrypt the data with before we put it in the cookie so there's always ways that the way you implement the technology would yeah. either mean that you have a vulnerability or not. Then we go back to JWTs. JWTs have two properties by, by default that you could choose. They are not turned on by default, but you could mm-hmm. turn them on. You have a cryptographic signature, which means that you have a secure hash. That means yeah. if someone is giving that token, they can't change the data without tampering with the signature. And they also have native encryption involved. So yeah. you could encrypt that data as well and you could do it. Now, you could take a JWT token and stuff it into a cookie. Mm-hmm. And it would work because you are leveraging the cookie as a storage system. But then the way you are actually, it's actually verifying the yeah. data is checking Through that JWT. it's exactly. Yeah. So JWT is an authentication mechanism with trade-offs. What is the one trade-off that it has? The one trade-off that it has, funny enough, is the one biggest advantage it has. <laughs> it is stateless. <laughs> it means that you don't, you can, you can't, once you've sent out a JWT, mm-hmm. You can't revoke it if you're using yeah. JWTs, right? Because yeah. a JWT is not meant to have any... Until it's expiry, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. People sometimes get rid of that. Like me sometimes, depending on the application I'm building, yeah. I put a value in the JWT and check if it is chained on the server. Yeah, And if it's chained on the server, then I consider it invalidated. But then I'm losing one of the biggest benefits of using JWTs because JWTs are stateless. And then when a call comes, I can take that single JWT without cross-checking anything else. Yeah, just verify that that data is correct. Exactly. But by using it the way I am using it, I'm only leveraging the encryption and um, um, the signature that is giving me to verify, the tamper-proofness of it. Yeah. But I am not benefiting from the stiplessness. Like solely depending on it for your security. So how you implement it is fine tools are going to be used just make sure that whenever you're doing something that especially relates to a secure part of your application mm-hmm. you understand that system well enough that technology that you're going to use yeah understand it what are the trade-offs here what do i need to do if i am going to use this am i okay with them if i'm okay then you go ahead or you don't you choose an alternative yeah and that's what we do as engineers yeah find the best solution to a problem within the specified cost and time yeah
0: i think when you were talking about the jwt uh authentication you mentioned Mm -hmm. about the implementation Mm -hmm. so um let's say i i I go to an open source project and it's an implementation of the jwt uh okay uh, mm -hmm. so
1: i didn't mean the implementation of the jwt as in the implementation of the library okay that supports jwt yes those also can cause vulnerabilities like maybe you go and use someone's um Someone wrote his code to write JWT, not well-tested. And then all of a sudden we find out that it's uh, vulnerable to to certain attack vectors. Mm-hmm. That is a library, that is an issue with a library. And that's why one of the things to, when it comes to security is to ensure that your dependencies are well-vetted mm-hmm. and always up to date. Anyway, that, that wasn't the, the, what I meant by implementation. What I meant by yeah. implementation was how you implement it in your application. your application, okay. In your application, yes. Not the libraries, but the libraries too can open you up to a vulnerability.
0: I think as engineers in our development process, we do use like libraries here and there, adding them Mm. to our projects and packages or gems in some language, they call them gems. Yeah. So uh, I just wanted to ask you like, uh, is there any vetting process around choosing libraries? Because some of them have vulnerabilities. Like if you look through the code, you can, you can see, like, you can notice some things that aren't done, like, uh, the more secure way. Like, mm. is there any process around choosing libraries?
1: So, that's the beauty and the ugliest, ugliness of open source code, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you are dealing with open source code, you get what you get. Um, it's up to you. Can you do a security audit of every tool you use? <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> So um, that's why we hope that other people in the open source community would be doing these audits. Some mm-hmm. it, You might have seen GitHub CVE reports, yeah. um, if you've enabled Dependabot, for example, yeah. Dependabot will mm-hmm. warn you about that. that um, thing is always disturbing. It's so <laughs> annoying sometimes, but <laughs> you have to do with it. Yeah. It would warn you when um, a library that you're using in one of your projects has been detected to have a vulnerability, yeah, or it's out of date or it's out kind of, of date kind of to out of date issue update. Um, so those are tools that you can you can start using to help you, but usually when you are choosing a library, you want to find something that is trusted. Mm-hmm. Um for example, it comes from a bigger, well-known, well-trusted um um company. For example, if I see a Shopify gem. Mm-hmm. I am more likely or more inclined to trust it than if I saw that the gem was written by someone who just switched from Node, right? Yeah. So, um, no hate, Node, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like, it, you, you have to also vet the publisher of the, the library that the you're library, using yeah. and stuff like that. We can never really catch all vulnerabilities because that's code. And the more code you add, the higher the surface area. And the more potential for bugs that you introduce so mm-hmm. um use the tools available to you dependable uh, cv reports um let's pray the open source communities helping yeah. us um and yeah
0: yeah and then uh personally i like automation i like just automating my processes because part of me is lazy <laughs> and as engineers I, I don't think like uh like most engineers spend like a large part of their day or uh, their sprints trying to do security stabs. Yeah. They are mostly focused on uh, building products and getting it to market. Correct. So are there, are there ways where ways an engineer or a team can build like some fundamental checks into their code base to just kind of catch like bugs early? Are there any ways we can do things like that?
1: So um, one of the things we should remember is if we arm ourselves with the basic tools of um, security then mm-hmm. we would in general like be protected and well as I said get rid of about 90 percent of vulnerability just by yeah. doing certain basic things right so if we if we were able to get ourselves armed with the basics that would mm-hmm. be our first our first way of fighting back um, the second thing would be um, at a code review stage where people with more experience should also take a look at these potential but yeah. like if you're writing database as a school i'm going to check are you using um, um what do you call them parameters or placeholders i don't to really call them placeholders or are you inlining your variables directly mm-hmm. into the string if you are then i'll raise that as a flag and say hey use a prepared statement um, use a parameter query something like that and Instead, because of the potential for vulnerabilities. Yeah. Or if you're using a language that doesn't, or a framework that doesn't support it, then quote, quote your variables, right? Yeah. So um, your second check would be at the code review. Then at the higher level, apart from that, you have a CI system. Your continuous integration system should can integrate certain open source tools mm-hmm. out there. Um, I don't have a comprehensive list, but um, tools like SonarCube, there's others that do the OWASP checks. Um, mm-hmm. There are quite a few tools that will do static and dynamic yeah. analysis of your code. And
0: you can incorporate these tools into your, into CI, your CI, CI
1: Okay. So your CI, if whatever you're using, would run that as a check. Yeah. And like the way you do maybe your testing and your test coverage report, mm-hmm. you run like a SonarCube analysis. You run um, whatever other tools you're using to run your dynamic and static yeah. analysis and give you... report you could go through this report periodically and then say okay look we have these vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. these potential issues let's fix them even linton linton can help you so um if you use something like javascript which you can make mistakes and certain mistakes can help you to vulnerability. i think
0: javascript they have the es links i think some of these links
1: would tell you like don't do this this might be put might potentially open you up for vulnerability um um even that for example has its own Mm. lint yeah where to tell you hey there's but sometimes it's just programs and syntax yeah but you have linting tools that would also help you know so well linting falls under static analysis right yeah i think
0: uh, i think tools that are built around it like basically do the same same checks kind of thing thing.
1: so um yeah your ci system you could integrate these tools that would help you scan and what else um if you have the big budget for it then you could have (laughs) um periodic uh pen testing yeah and stuff like that if you're a big company especially dealing with money you should you should do the stuff anyway. Yeah.
0: yeah so yeah uh with you being in the industry and i and i and i know you've uh hired engineers to work on large projects mm-hmm. like um in your interview process how do you test software engineers for this basic security or uh you want to be sure that your engineers are security conscious and not just writing code that works and yeah like how do you interview that
1: um, generally depending on the level and the kind of job you're coming, coming to do. So mm-hmm. if you're coming in as a DevOps engineer, there will be different questions I will be asking you, right? Okay. Pertaining to how you're going to secure the network, how, how I'm going to mainly try to ask you best practices. Like, yeah. so if you're setting up um, a network, how would you set it up? Open ended question, let the person talk about it an architecture review. Um, one of the ways that is more effective is also in take-home assignments yeah so when you have a take-home assignment then you're able to get people to come back with your code Mm -hmm. and you can look out specifically for certain things are they validating (laughs) your code are they reporting i wish
0: i wish someone had told me that was probably the goal of like take-home assignments assignments, uh. every time i see take-home assignments i'm like i'm not going to work for free like no no, sometimes the take-home assignments
1: (laughs) are trying to get you to work for free Um, in some some instances it's the only way to evaluate certain skills yeah Um, I don't like them myself Mm -hmm. I generally prefer to have a more um, verbal discussion with you to understand how Mm -hmm. you think because I'm more concerned about the thought process so um, in general depending on the role you're coming to play would would determine what kind of questions and I would generally keep them open-ended so throw a question to the person like if you were designing an API that mm-hmm. signed up a user, how would you design it? Yeah. Allow them to choose their technologies, whatever. If they skip a step, ask them. So at this point, what if I enter a phone number and find out if they've already talked about it or they are now thinking about it because mm-hmm. that has an impact. Um, things like, okay, so what kind of authentication scheme are you going to use? Like I'm going to use JWT, yeah. whatever. All of those um, are included in... How you would evaluate someone? Mm-hmm. So open-ended but directed. So you keep it open-ended but keep directing them in a way you want to understand whether they really understand what they are talking mm-hmm. about or not. It's hard to interview in any circumstance, right? So judging um, a security mindset itself is, is in itself also pretty difficult.
0: Yeah. yeah. So working at like uh, a tech organization, I have experience working at like smaller companies, but like mm-hmm. in 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 the case where we detect a vulnerability. Or maybe someone is able to hack into our app and then they maybe steal money away. Like, are there are there, are there processes that actually, well, they would be able to fix the issue. But then, uh, is would the developer be in trouble?
1: Like, are there are there systems around situations like that? So I don't believe that any organization should deal in um, in blame game Mm -hmm. if you work in an organization that works on blame game then it's it's problematic if someone makes an honest mistake Mm -hmm. and you figure it out and you try to correct them and they don't then they are not um a valuable employee yeah you let them go but if someone makes a mistake and you blame them for it instead of trying to fix it then it it doesn't really auger well for the reputation of the organization and how to treat their people People make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Trust me. I've seen senior, most engineers make mistakes, like basic mistakes. Mm-hmm. And you can't blame people. The only way you do it is you look at what is there, what happened. Um, you do um, a root cause analysis. Mm-hmm. Once you run, run a root cause analysis, figure out what went wrong. Yeah. Then you can come up with procedures to prevent that from happening in the, the next time. Yeah. So if something happens the first time, every organization that is smart, would put in, would investigate to find out why it happened. If someone was negligent, negligence is a different thing from making a mistake. Yeah. If someone's <coughs> negligent and there's um, there's punishment to be meted out, fine. But you want to build upon that learning and and improve and prevent future occurrences. Yeah. You can't just uh, be blaming <coughs> everyone. You're going to uh, destroy morale Yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So
0: how, how should uh, junior engineers approach Security, cause imagine uh, I was a junior engineer. Maybe I have just one year yeah. writing backend systems, and those systems just live under my bed. Like <laughs> I've hosted them on Heroku and just yeah. tested them myself. Yeah. And then I get into an organization where I'm in charge of a, an e-commerce application mm. where I'm processing payments. Yeah. Like knowing all these things, there could be that like lurking fear around in my head. Like one day someone might exploit my system like how how should i approach it such that like i'm still able to write the code and not scared of like me like just 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 kind of being scared of like making the wrong choice scared of making a mistake
1: exactly so um this is why it's important for seniors to especially if you're giving a junior a security sensitive task to first of all walk them through Right? If you're giving a junior a task and you can walk them through, walk them through what it is, let them understand what they need to do. And if there are any things that they should keep out, like look out for, like uh, let them know and point them in the right direction to find information. So when you do that and they are approaching the problem, they feel more confident. They feel like, okay, I know what might happen and I have learned about this, so I am more confident. And then the second process is the code review process. That LGTM thing it doesn't (laughs) fly. Like actually look through the code. I know we all do it. Looks good to me. It looks good to me. (laughs) Uh, Shout out to Dweikle. I think what is? Oh no 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 no. His is everybody lies at stand up.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, lead for stand up. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Dweikle's own is is the lead for stand up.
1: So wait, he made he did an 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 episode where he said everybody lies at stand up. Yeah, everybody
0: lies lies at
2: stand up. Yeah, 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 like.
1: So um, the second part of it would be the senior making sure that they've reviewed the, the junior's work properly yeah. and then try to cut some of these things. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, then you would never build a confidence in them to allow them to go ahead and do it. Even if they become seniors, it's important for you to still review the code like review the code, yeah. they might make mistakes. right? It's, 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 it's less frequent for a senior to make a mistake than a junior, yeah. but you don't review that code with any less thoroughness. Mm-hmm. So everyone should always... Um, it's a team. That's why if you're blaming, then who are you blaming? Are you blaming the person who wrote exactly. the code? Or you're blaming the one who reviewed, reviewed the, code. the code? yeah. Or you're blaming the one who released the code? Because <laughs> we all played a part in <laughs> there it, There are right? lots of moving parts exactly. to this. Yeah. And, or the one who tested the code. Yeah, the, the QA tester. The QA tester. <laughs> I think, I think most of the gather? time we
0: blame them because like, why didn't you see <laughs> but this? But why did
1: you not see <laughs> it as the engineer, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's a collaborative effort that you want to build upon. You don't want yeah. to um blame anyone and then cause any bad morale yeah
0: all right steph so it's been a fruitful conversation with you talking about security and how junior engineers should approach security and kind of like um tip, tips uh things we should be conscious about validating input setting like constraints yeah. uh how we should uh choose our libraries vetting them yep, yep. reading uh documentation and just being uh updated with like versions and just being conscious of all these things and kind of like incorporating this static analysis tools into our build pipelines using environmental uh, variables and all these things. Yeah, it's it's been a nice conversation with you and I'm really grateful you are here to uh, run this. Do you have any final
2: words?
1: I'm happy you had <laughs> me. It's been a long time coming. Yeah. right? Like we've, we've been planning on doing this for yeah. a while and I'm happy we finally did it. Um, Maybe we should meet soon and do a more in that uh, mm-hmm. more advanced study of security. Exactly. Yeah.
0: exactly. I'm absolutely down for it.
1: Yeah. I, I have a few people who are actually more <laughs> into security that we could yeah. have a proper discussion. Yeah. About. That should be fun. That would be great. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right, Steph. Fine. So, uh, how, how do we even do this? <laughs> what was that? All right. Thank you guys for listening to the Comrades Podcast and uh, TCP. probably have another episode soon. See you guys. Bye-bye.